The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone. So, good morning once again. And uh, we're going to continue where we left off yesterday, obviously, which is uh, the uh, fifth part of this chapter, which is called the account of the Supreme Being's request. So we have seen some of the um, events after the Buddha's awakening, and uh, now we're going to come to kind of the event that sort of changes the course of history, so to speak, yeah. the one that where the Buddha decides uh, to become a teacher. And of course, that is very significant. So we'll see what happens here. So. Uh, after seven days, the Buddha came out from that stillness, that samadhi, yeah, the samadhi of the uh, liberation, uh, the uh, re- enjoying the bliss of freedom, uh, and went from the ape flower tree to the goat herd's banyan tree, and he stayed there. Then, while in seclusion, uh, the Buddha thought this, uh, I have discovered this profound truth, uh, so hard to see, so hard to comprehend. It is peaceful and sublime, subtle, beyond the intellect, and noble only to the wise. But human beings delight in holding on, find pleasure in holding on, and rejoice in holding on. And because of that, it's hard for them to see causal relationships, dependent origination. This too is very hard for them to see, the stilling of all intentional activities, uh, the giving up of all ownership, the stopping of craving, uh, fading away, ending uh, extinguishments. Uh, If I were to teach this truth, uh, others would not understand, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. So uh, here, we have the Buddha, he is almost becoming a Pacheka Buddha. Yeah, Pacheka Buddha is uh, the kind of what is often called the private Buddhas in Buddhism. And these are the Buddhas that don't teach. Yeah, they reach awakening, but they don't actually end up teaching. Yeah. And here the Buddha is kind of inclining to sort of become a Pacheka Buddha rather than becoming a Samma, some Buddha. So, and this is the reason. You can see here the reason is because he just realized this is really difficult. Yeah, this is a profound truth that I have discovered. Uh, hard to see, hard to understand. Uh, yeah, and uh, if it is uh, hard for someone with very powerful spiritual faculties, uh, it's going to be much more difficult for just an ordinary person. Uh, why is it so hard to see? Uh, and this is kind of what is interesting about this. Uh, what is so difficult about this? Uh, and uh, there are many things in uh, the spiritual path that seem difficult, like you know, just achieving a state of samadhi, achieving a degree of stillness. Uh, this seems hard enough already. Yeah. But uh, that is not really all that hard. All we have to do, do is incline the mind in the right direction. Uh, all we have to do is to uh, kind of... <clears throat> give up a few things, yeah, and kind of practice kindness and these things. And samadhi is the outcome of just living well and doing the right thing. So it's not really hard, it's a matter of developing the mind. But the insight that the Buddha has, that is really hard. And 
Why is that? Well, the reason is because uh, it goes against the uh, conditioning that we have always had, uh, the idea of non-self and the feeling that we exist in a certain way. So it goes against the very profound, very kind of basis of our individuality, what we think we are as human beings. It goes against this profound conditioning that has always been there. We've never seen the world in any different way. We always had this sense of self inside of us. And because of that, this is like a, a revolution in consciousness, a revolution in your mind, uh, turning everything upside down, seeing everything in an entirely new way. Uh, that is why it is so hard. And uh, so it takes someone with very special spiritual qualities to be able to do this. Uh, yeah, it's very rare that this kind of person arises in the world. Uh, and uh, it, uh, so this is... Uh, this is the difficulty. This is why the Buddha says it is so hard. So uh, it is like you can imagine if you have a, um, you know, if you have a, a system like any kind of system of, of logic. Yeah, if you go if you go to university and they will teach you logic, and logic is always based on certain foundations, certain axioms, certain ideas that stand at the very beginning. Yeah, If A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C. That kind of stuff. Yes, yeah, kind of axioms of logic. And, uh, and in the same, same way, we, ha we live our life and we think about things based on certain kind of ideas that are always taken for granted. Uh, and one of those things that we take for granted in life is the sense of self, that we exist in a certain way. Uh, and because it is at the very base of how we see the world, uh, it is very hard to change that outlook, that way of looking at things. Uh, so this is the really profound part. Yeah, this idea of seeing through this sense of self, uh, which turns out to be false, according to Buddhism. Uh, and it is peaceful and sublime. Yeah, so this truth is peaceful and sublime. Uh, santang, panitang, and this santa panita are words that are used in the suttas for the highest kind of qualities that we can experience. So if, you know, the very deep states of samadhi, they are called santang, panitang, nibbana, insight is called santa panita. It is all peaceful and sublime. And... Uh, this is an important point, that truth and happiness always go together. When you see the truth, you don't feel miserable. Oh no, the truth, that was really bad news. I don't, didn't want to see that this truth is really terrible. And then you feel really so much dukkha because you see the truth. No, truth always comes with happiness. It is always a positive thing. Yeah, This is kind of the... And when you think about it, it's quite obvious it has to be that way. Uh, because when we see the truth, it enables us to uh, live according to that truth. It means we can make good decisions in life. Yeah, When you see things as they actually are, you can make good decisions. Uh, if you have wrong information about reality, you make all kind of crazy decisions. Uh, yeah, it's, Life is always like that. If you have wrong information about the way the world is, uh, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, yeah, like I mentioned the other day, if you think that the BSV is in Torak, Torak, or how do you pronounce it? Torak. Uh, if you think, then you come, you have a lot of suffering because you don't get to the BSV here. Yeah, <laughs> or you you want to get some food, you want to go down to the corner shop and get some food, but you think the corner shop is to the left when actually it's to the right. Well, then you don't get your breakfast or whatever. That's suffering. Yeah, small suffering, of course, but it's suffering nonetheless. Or you. 
invest on the stock market, you got all the wrong information about which companies are doing well. You invest in the wrong company, you lose a fortune. That's suffering for many people. That's a lot of suffering when they lose money on the stock market. And so these are small things, but it shows you the idea that when we act from wrong information, from a misunderstanding, it leads to suffering, yeah? Almost in all cases, unless you are really lucky and there's another corner shop to the left, not just to the right, or something like that. But usually it leads to suffering. And the same thing is true on the spiritual path. Wrong information leads to suffering. Right understanding leads to happiness because you can act according to truth, not according to falsehood. Happiness and truth always go together. So we should be seekers of truth. We should be seekers of reality. Not just have blind faith and be kind of be silly, but be wise about things. So it's peaceful and sublime, this truth. Yeah, it's the highest truth. It is subtle. It takes an incredibly subtle mind to be able to see this. This is why it is beyond the intellect. The intellect here means like the thinking mind. Yeah, Ataka vachara is the Pali word, beyond the sphere of thinking, quite literally. It's very subtle. Because it is subtle, it takes a mind that is very powerful. A mind that can see things in a very deep way. What kind of mind is that? Well, this is why samadhi, the stillness of the mind, is so important. Because that stillness and peace of the mind allows you to focus. It allows you to stay with the object that you're looking at uh, and then uncover the truth underneath. Uh, this is why Noble Eightfold Path ends in samma, samadhi, right stillness. Uh, the very powerful states of mind, because they are the only ones who enable you to see a truth that is so subtle and so deep and so profound. Noble only to the wise. You have to be wise to become wise. That's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? So if you're not, <laughs> if you're not wise, you can't become wise. It's interesting. <laughs> so you have to have some kind of preliminary wisdom. Yeah, there's different levels of wisdom. But you have to have some kind of starting point of wisdom, otherwise you have a problem. So you can see the Buddha here sees that this is, oh, this is hard. Uh, and uh, this is so profound, yet human beings, they delight in holding on. They find pleasure in holding on. They rejoice in holding on. Uh, and because we hold on, it is hard to see causal relationships, uh, dependent origination. Uh, Holding on is alaya, and so you're grasping onto things. Yeah, you are, you're holding on to the things of the world, not being able to let them go, and um, that is the opposite of seeing causal relationship. Because when we hold on, we want things to be permanent. We want things to be reliable. Yeah, if you have a relationship, you don't want to know that that relationship is going to end. Your partner could die tomorrow. That's painful if you are in a relationship or your kids are going to die tomorrow that's painful or whoever is close to you if they're going to die that's always going to be painful whatever you hold on there's going to be pain relate potential pain related to that you don't want to understand causality you don't want to understand how quickly things can change we are always surprised by change right if you weren't surprised by change, you wouldn't grieve, you wouldn't suffer when someone dies. But we do that, and usually because we're not really fully 
aware of that potential for change at any time. Yeah, because we haven't taken it fully on board, we still suffer when people die, when people pass away, when the world goes funny and all of these kind of things. The truth hasn't really sunk in fully. You may think that you understand impermanence, but most people only understand it in a superficial way, not deeply within. And that's really what we need to do. A very large part of the path is to mature these ideas so they become deeper and deeper realities within us. Every time you reflect on the Buddhist teachings, every time you go deeper into the idea of impermanence, you understand how unsatisfactory and problematic the world is. Then you can let go a little bit more. You let go a little bit more. The world really is problematic. Every time there is a problem in the world, every time there is another war coming up, every time there is another COVID coming, yeah, this is only one COVID, another one coming down the track. Are you ready for the next COVID? Probably had enough of this one, right? You don't want to think about the next one already. <laughs> but that's the truth. Another COVID is just waiting to arrive. Yeah, Climate change, is it going to get better or worse? It's going to get worse, right? So the idea is we, when you see your resistance to that change, you know you haven't really taken it on board. But this is the nature of the world to go like this. And then when you see that another war coming up, you think, yeah, yeah, I expected that. Yeah, Another war. Oh yeah, that's to be expected. Uh, Australia is going to be invaded by Mar Martians. Oh yeah, I expected that. Uh, <laughs> we are so far away from most other countries, so you kind of you not think you're not going to be invaded, but then they come from a completely different direction uh, than you had expected. So this is the nature of things, yeah. And we need to allow these things to sink in gradually, gradually, gradually. This is how right view arises in us slowly, slowly. Then you start to look for a refuge in a different place. That refuge is the refuge within, the refuge in meditation, the refuge in kindness, the refuge in living the spiritual path, because you understand that the external world is completely out of control. So you don't hold on to that world anymore, yeah? And instead, you allow yourself to understand these causal relationships, idda pachayata. Is the idea that there is a specific cause for things, yeah? And this is what dependent origination is about. It's about showing specific causes. What is the specific cause for craving? It's feeling, yeah? That's the cause that really matters. What is the specific cause for feeling? It's contact. And back it goes all the way to ignorance. And the idea between specific cause is very important because it means that if you take away that specific cause, the consequence disappears. Take away ignorance, all the 12 links disappear, come to an end, including suffering at the very end of it. Uh, specific conditionality or causal relationships, dependent origination. You cannot see that as long as you're holding on. You have to let go of the holding on, then you can see dependent origination. Uh, because these things are inverses of each other. Uh, this too is very hard to see, the stilling of all intentional activities, uh, sabba, sankara, samatha. Samatha is the calming, it's the same word you find in samatha meditation, yeah? calming down. Uh, so the stilling of all intentional activities. Uh, this is what we are doing in meditation practice, uh, allowing things to be, uh, stilling things, allowing things to become supremely peaceful. Uh, and uh, the more stillness there is, the less activity we have. 
the more pleasure there is, uh, the more happy you are as a consequence. Uh, stilling everything leads to the complete, the highest kind of happiness. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the real full stilling happens through insight when you become like an arahant. An arahant doesn't have intentional activities. Sankharas have stopped. It does, this doesn't mean that the arahant doesn't have any will. You still have will. You still have to do things. Yeah? You have to eat, go to the toilet, talk to people, whatever it is. So you still have some will, but there is no intention in the sense of, I'm going to create happiness for myself in the future. There's not, nothing like that. Uh, this is what drives us as human beings. The idea we're going to create happiness for ourselves. Uh, we're going to go out and do things, and that will somehow lead to happiness. Uh, this is where craving comes from. Uh, there's no more of that. Yeah? Happiness is always in the present for the arahant, going inwards, uh, stilling things, becoming peaceful. So these kamma formations, the idea of creating kamma, which then leads to more rebirth, that is all completely gone, that is sabba, Sabbhisankara Samadha. The giving up of all ownership, Sabh Upadi Patinisaga. Yeah. Upadi is uh, the, um, are the things we hold on to in the world, the Upadis. Uh, so you relinquish, you give up all of these things that kind of we hold on to, that we grasp, that we attach to in the world. Uh, this is why I've called it ownership here. Sometimes some people translate this as the giving up of all acquisitions and this kind of thing. But it sounds, to me, it sounds a bit sort of uh, giving up of all acquisitions. sounds a bit kind of highfalutin here. So I kind of get, try to get it back to some more understandable vocabulary. So giving up of all ownership. Yeah, this includes everything here. Everything we own in the world, uh, all our relationships, everything in the sensory realm. Uh, but more importantly, it also includes the giving up of the ownership of the five khandhas. No more ownership of the five khandhas. This is not me, this is not mine. This is why this is so profound, yeah? because it takes ownership to its very limit of what ownership can possibly mean. The stopping of craving, tanha kaya, fading away, viraga, ending niroda, extinguishment, nibbana. All of these things are fading away, ending. Yeah, this is the ending of craving, stopping of craving. Niroda, Nibbana. You will notice I always translate Nibbana as extinguishment, because if we don't translate these words, then we can read any kind of dodgy meaning into it. So extinguishment is the translation here. So, then the Buddha thinks, if I were to teach these truths, other truth others would not understand that would be wearying and troublesome for me yeah. so did the buddha actually think this do you think he thought this does the buddha think like this or does he not think like this uh, <laughs> so the it's, it's fascinating I, I i don't know if this story really is um, Original, it's kind of it's fascinating because uh, when you read some of the parallel suttas, there's another sutta which is parallel to this, uh, and this story is missing. It's not there. And that makes you wonder whether it is real, is there a real deal or not, whether this actually happened, or whether the Buddha just started teaching straight away. So I don't know what the answer is. Uh, but um, I, uh, so the Buddha doesn't normally think, oh, this is wearying and troublesome. Yeah, you're full enlightened. Shouldn't be that wearying and troublesome if you're full enlightened. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> 
But then again, the, even the Buddha prefers to be in stillness and samadhi, yeah, just to kind of meditate and hang out in jhanas. Even the Buddha does that in the suttas. So um, it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to kind of know for sure what is uh, what is really happening here. But uh, we will see in a second that what happens next, of course, is that the Brahma Sahampati, he comes down and begs the Buddha, please teach. Yeah, Beings are really in serious trouble if you don't teach. So please, please teach. So he comes down. And um, that whole idea of the Brahma coming down and like being the Buddha's disciple uh, is... Um, it's another interesting idea, and it you know it seems to be saying that well now the Buddha is the highest in the world. All other beings are kind of underneath; they become disciples of the Buddha. So it seems to be a little bit kind of like um, propaganda or something like that. <laughs> anyway, let's um, let's carry on. And spontaneously, these verses never heard before occurred to the Buddha. What I've discovered with difficulty, there is no point in making it known. For those overcome by sensual desire and ill will, this truth is hard to understand. Those who are excited by sensual desire, obstructed by a mass of darkness, won't see what goes against the stream, what subtle and refined profound and hard to see. When the Buddha reflected like this, uh, he inclined to in inactivity, not to teaching. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, again, uh, this um, beautiful little verse is there, the idea that what the Buddha discovered goes against the stream, it goes in the opposite direction of where most people go. Yeah, Most people, they kind of go out into the world trying to acquire things to make life happy by creating a happy existence, by sankharas, instead of stilling the sankharas, they rejoice in the sankharas. Yay! I am the creator, I am the maker. I'm an artist, I create wonderful things in the world. It's fine to be an artist, but it's still this creative activity which goes against the stream. Yeah, and um, we tend to, it's interesting how we tend to put people who are very creative on a pedestal in modern society. Yeah, creative people are considered kind of the best and good companies and whatever they want, creative people who can bring the company forward. But from the Buddha's point of view, being creative is actually not so good. Yeah, being creative means that you are creating stuff and you are keeping an active mind that always engages with the world. What you want to do is the opposite. You want to go against that stream. You don't want to create so much. So we should be careful with who we put on the pedestal. Better to have Buddha on the pedestal than the creative people on the pedestal. So tear down those false gods, the creative people. The false uh, uh, gurus or whatever. Yeah. So it goes against the stream, yeah. And this is kind of what the Buddha says here. It's always nice. I like this idea in the suttas uh, where you have the prose passages that explains to you what is going on, uh, and then you have a few verses that kind of are inspirational. It kind of makes the thing come alive in a beautiful way. Yeah. Okay, let us carry on. 
Just then the supreme being Sahampati read the mind of the Buddha. He thought, the world is lost, it is perished. For the Buddha, perfected and fully awakened, inclines to inaction, not to teaching. The Supreme Being is my translation for Brahma. Yeah? So this is Brahma, Sahampati. These are the beings that are in the very highest realms. And uh, he reads the Buddha's mind. So why does he read the Buddha's mind? How did he know which mind to read? How many be human beings are there in the world? There's millions. And he happened to read the Buddha's mind. And according to the backstory, the Buddha and uh, Brahma Sahampati, they were mates in the past life. <laughs> and because they were mates, they were practicing together, right? And they, so they had some feeling or understanding of each other. So Brahma Sahampati obviously knew that the Buddha was very special. So that's probably why he read his mind. That's the story that makes this seem reasonable. Yeah, and then the world is lost, the world is perished. It's kind of powerful saying. In other words, you will carry on in samsara. There will be no finding an end of the problem unless the Buddha teaches the world. Then, just as a strong man might bend or stretch his arm, so Sahampati disappeared from the world of supreme beings and appeared in front of the Buddha. He put his upper robe over one shoulder, yeah, <laughs> placed his right knee on the ground, raised his joint palms and said, Please teach, Venerable Sir, please teach. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are ruined because of not hearing the teaching. There will be those who understand. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that Brahma puts his upper robe over one shoulder. I don't, didn't know Brahmas did that, but anyway, that's what he does. He places his right knee on the ground. What does he do that for? Is that, is that a good thing to do? <laughs> I guess, yeah, I think, veneration, yeah. So if you ever see anyone with hands in Anjali placing the right knee on the ground, you should ask them whether they really are human beings or not. <laughs> Maybe they are a Brahma coming down. Yeah, it would be interesting. You don't usually see that, right? So I think I wonder whether there are Buddhist shrines that have we have that kind of being with the right hand that is part of Buddhist iconography. Maybe I don't know whether you see that. Anyway, so this is what Brahmas do, right? So you keep an eye out for those Brahmas. <laughs> And uh, then he says, please teach. Yeah. So these Brahmas have a lot of compassion and kindness in them. That's how you get reborn in the Brahma Loka. Yeah. They say that the way to the Brahma Loka is through Metta and Karuna and the four Brahma Viharas. That's why they're called Brahma Viharas, uh, divine abidings, uh, the abidings of the supreme beings. Uh, they have so much compassion. They want to help everyone in the world. Uh, that's why they come to the Buddha and they say, please, teach. Yeah, we need you. You don't, dis don't just disappear and die or whatever. We need you to be around. There are beings with little dust in their eyes. Dust is defilements. Dust are attachments. This is dust. Yeah? It blinds you. It, it blocks your vision. You can't see clearly. You have all these vested interests in the world. And because you can't see clearly, it's like having dust in your eyes. But it's dust in your spiritual eye rather than dust in your physical eye. And that dust is defilements. 
it's a nice metaphor for the defilements and the attachments that we have uh, dust in the eyes uh, and they are ruined uh, yeah they, they don't find true happiness uh, and then he says of course the critical thing there will be those who understand this is what Sahampati said and he added uh, Earlier among the Magadans an impure teaching appeared conceived by defiled people. Open this door to the deathless. Let them hear the teaching discovered by the pure one. Just as one standing on a rocky mountain top would see the people all around just so, all-seeing wise one, ascend the temple of the truth. Being rid of sorrow, look upon the people, sunk in grief, overcome by birth and old age. Stand up, victorious hero, leader of travelers, wander the world without obligation. Sir, proclaim the teaching. There will be those who understand. So, um, yeah, there, there have been impure teachings before, <coughs> conceived by defiled people. You can only have a pure teaching if you are undefiled yourself, uh, yeah, in the highest kind of um, non-defilement. And uh, so, So all of these things, defilements are what stands in the way. Yeah? So because the Buddha doesn't have any defilement, uh, yeah, he should be the one who teaches the deathless. Uh. And then you have this beautiful uh, kind of saying, like someone standing high above uh, on a rocky mountain top. Uh, it is like when you purify your mind and you achieve deep stillnesses and you it's like you are above everyone else yeah and you're kind of looking down and you understand the reality that before it's like you have to extract yourself from the human realm to be able to understand that human realm you cannot understand the human realm while you are still part of it you have to mentally be above it you're standing on the mountaintop looking out and seeing the people still stuck in the realm of uh, the jungle of uh, sensual defilements. Uh, yeah, so in the same way, ascend the temple of the truth. Uh, and this is a slightly poetic translation. It's not really, it doesn't exactly say that in the Pali. It says something like, uh, uh, climb the pasada. Pasada are, st are stilt houses, uh, the pasada of truth. But uh, the idea of, uh, again, the idea of being above, uh, yeah? And then look down on the people and understand them. And basically saying to the Buddha, look at them. yeah. And if you look at them in this way, knowing that you have the answer to the problem, compassion will arise. Leader of travelers. Yeah? The, Buddha is the leader. Wander the world without obligation. You don't do this out of obligation. You do it simply out of compassion. Twice... The Buddha repeated to Sahampati what he had thought, and on both occasions Sahampati repeated his request. The Buddha then understood the request of that supreme being. Then with the eye of a Buddha he surveyed the world out of compassion for sentient beings. 
Now the compassion arises. Yeah, we haven't heard about the word compassion so far. There's nothing in the story up to this point that is about compassion. Now compassion comes into the equation. Now the Buddha is finally feeling. He knows that the world is suffering. He knows he has the answer to that suffering. And he knows that there will be people and beings who understand. Yeah? And because he knows that, uh, and he, then he starts to, the compassion arises, and then he starts to do something for the world. Uh, the eye of a Buddha, this is like the mental eye, right? The, uh, has the ability to survey the world in a different way from the normal physical eye. Uh, he saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes. Uh, with sharp faculties and with dull faculties, uh, with good qualities and with bad qualities, uh, easy to teach and difficult to teach. He even saw some who regarded the next world as dangerous and to be avoided, uh, while others did not. It was just like blue, red and white lotuses sprouted and grown in a lotus pond. Some remain submerged in the water without rising out of it. Others reach the surface of the water, while others still rise out of the water without touching it, without being touched by it. When he had seen this, the Buddha replied to Sahampati in verse, Open to them are the doors to the deathless. May those who hear release their faith. Seeing trouble, Supreme Being, I did not speak the sublime and subtle truth. So um, here we have uh, the Buddha finally surveying the world and realizing that actually there are beings there who are almost ready. That's what he, this is kind of the point of this passage, yeah? The idea that he sees beings with little dust in their eyes, uh, with sharp faculties, with good qualities. Uh, easy to teach even. Yeah? So he sees that there is a potential for awakening in the world. And of course this then gives rise to the Buddha's compassion even more. Because now that becomes the, the ground for teaching becomes established if you like. Sharp faculties means the spiritual faculties are sharp. It means you have mindfulness. It means some of them already have samadhi. Some of them have a degree of wisdom. Yeah? Sharp spiritual faculties. Good qualities, same thing. Some are already kind-hearted, very moral, very virtuous, don't think any bad thoughts, etc. Some are easy to teach, some are open-minded, they're willing to listen. Some are stubborn and unwilling to listen. <laughs> and um, so it's good to be easy to teach, right? It's good to be open-minded. It's good not to be too close-minded. It's good not to have your head full of ideas already, and then you can't really take on board anything here. Yeah, so it's having that openness of mind, incredibly important. And he even saw some who regarded the next world as dangerous and to be avoided. So in other words, there are Beings already in the world uh, who understand the danger of samsaric existence, uh, of the round of rebirth. Uh, 
And this is quite rare, right? This is quite hard to understand this because sometimes you have to see the idea of rebirth to actually be able to see this. So this is already a very profound insight into the nature of reality. You have a good understanding of the problem of dukkha, of suffering, if you understand the danger of the next world. This is really what the Buddha kind of is on about, what he's trying to stop. So because of that, the Buddha then uh, decides he's going to teach. Yeah, you have this beautiful simile about the lotuses, blue, red, and white lotuses, uh, sprouted and grown in a lotus pond. Some remain submerged in the water. These are the beings that are uh, kind of full of sensual desire and they're kind of just enjoying the world. Others have reached the surface, and reaching the surface is a bit like uh, someone who attains the state of samadhi. You're like you have just left the world behind, the world is under you. Now you have reached the surface, you're starting to see what the water is like. You're like the frog emerging from the water. You've been a tadpole all your life, now you're becoming a frog. You come out of the water for the first time, you can understand what that water actually is. Yeah, you are reached the surface, and then they're standing out of the water. Well, that's the Buddha who stands out of the water, uh, who is beyond it, uh, and understands the world fully, because he's outside. Uh. And then uh, he opens the doors to the deathless. Yeah, this is like teaching the Dhamma. And uh, may those who hear release their faith. Uh. So this is... Um, uh, the beginning of the Dhamma. From this point onwards, the Dhamma becomes available to the world. So, Sahampati thought, the Buddha has consented to teach. He bowed down, circumambulated the Buddha with his right side towards him, and disappeared right there. He had done his job. There was nothing more for Brahma Sahampati to do. And now he could just go back to his heavenly realm and chillax. That's what they do in the heavenly realms, they chillax. <laughs> because um, that's the point of being reborn in those realms, that you can, you know, it's actually pretty cool and relaxing to stay there. So that's Brahma Sahampati, the story of uh, him and the Buddha kind of meeting each other and what came from that. Um, So, um, then, after that has happened, then what happens next is that the Buddha uh, thinks who is ready in the world, right? Who should I teach first? I have actually, there's a few dots there, so there's a few little bit left out. So I'm going to tell you what that left out is, just very briefly. And uh, so the Buddha thinks, well, who should I teach? Yeah. And the first thing the Buddha thinks, well, I should teach those five monks who were helping me. He actually calls them bhikkhus, which is kind of interesting, even though there aren't really any bhikkhus left in the world. Because the word bhikkhu really means someone who lives on arms. Yeah, bhikkha is arms. Bhikkhu is someone who lives on arms. Or bhikkhuni, someone who lives on arms. So he thinks, well, those five bhikkhus, they were incredibly helpful to me. They were really helpful. Maybe I should teach them first. They didn't have so much dust in their eyes. Yeah. And actually, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. First of all, he thinks, well, actually, the people who were really useful to me, first of all, was Alara Kalam and Uddhakaramaputta. Yeah. And he, uh, because they, and then he says specifically, they had little dust in their eyes and they were 
very helpful to me. One of the things about the Buddha here, you can see he has a sense of gratitude. Yeah? And this is sometimes we think of the Buddha as completely different from us, but not really. The Buddha is like a perfected version of us. Whereas we might think, yeah, they were nice to me, we don't have that much gratitude. Gratitude is quite a, it's a very elevated spiritual feelings. But because the Buddha, of course, is the highest in terms of elevated spiritual qualities, uh, he will have that gratitude. Uh, yeah, so the Buddha has gratitude. Uh, yeah, and this, and this makes you, enables you to relate to the Buddha as a person. He has feelings just like us. Uh, there, isn't, there isn't that massive gulf between the Buddha and a human being. Well, there is in one sense, but in another sense there is not. Uh, and it's important to see that humanity in the Buddha because then you can relate to him. Then you can listen to him in a different way. It's like a human being teaching another human being. Not a god, something completely different, but a human to human. The Buddha understands you because he has been there. He has had those defilements, at least to some extent, and he has developed his mind and he has reached these things. So you can relate to the Buddha much more if you understand the humanity of the Buddha. He has gratitude. Thank you, Alara Kalama. Now I'm going to teach you. I'm going to kind of help you because you helped me. But of course, it turns out Alara Kalama is already passed away. Yeah, so he he kind of he realizes passed away, so can't do anything with that. Uddaka Ramaputta also passed away, so can't teach him. And then he thinks, what's the next thing? people I can teach. Well, that's the group of five monks. They were also helpful to me. Even though they left the Buddha at the very end, yeah, said, oh, yeah, you slack, yeah, you kind of indulging, you're eating food again, yeah, we don't, we don't believe in people who eat, you shouldn't be eating at all, yeah, you should, if anything, you should eat less, you already. <laughs> so very kind of, uh, very, this idea of ascetic practices was so ingrained in people in ancient India, they weren't able to think about the spiritual path without these things. Uh, so the moment the Buddha started to eat, and of course the Buddha started, actually the Buddha to be, he started to eat. The reason was because he was too emaciated to be able to attain jhanas. Yeah? His body was too, too weak and it stopped him from attaining deep meditation. So then he had some solid food, he ate, he regained his strength. Then he was able to attain those deep meditations. So it's because of their misunderstanding and they left the Buddha because he was eating. Yeah? And that's when the Buddha became awakened. Maybe that was good for the Buddha because then he was kind of by himself, right? He could just uh, really... So uh, anyway, the Buddha still has uh, that sense of gratitude to them even though they kind of left him uh, towards the end. And then he surveys again the world and he realizes, well, they are staying in Benares, Benares, Varanasi. Uh, which is quite a long way from Borgaya. If you look on the map of India, you will see there's a few hundred kilometers between Borgaya and Varanasi, for those of you who have been there. And so he says, yes, I will go, I will now go to uh, Varanasi, uh, the deer park in Saranath, and I will <coughs> teach the group of five monks, the Dhamma that I have discovered, uh, yeah, out of gratitude, essentially, for what they did for him. Uh, and so the next story here is only a short little story. This is a, a story of a meeting, the first meeting, the first person the Buddha meets uh, after the Balikantapusa that we saw before. And this is the Ajivaka ascetic Upaka that the Buddha meets. And this is what happens when he meets this Upaka. It's kind of an interesting little story here. 
Well, the Ajivaka ascetic Upaka saw the Buddha traveling between Gaya and the place of awakening him. He said to the Buddha, Sir, your senses are clear. Your skin is pure and bright. Who have you gone forth under? Who is your teacher or whose teaching do you follow? So you can see here, you can imagine that, like I mentioned yesterday, the Buddha has just awakened. Yeah, He had just come out, he's been sitting under these uh, trees, according to the story here, for seven days here, seven days there, just enjoying the bliss of awakening. This is when the Buddha, you can imagine there's no kind of um, defilement from the world. He just hasn't talked to anyone. He hasn't kind of been influenced by worldly things at all. So he's still kind of maximum power after the awakening. And it is said in the suttas, if we go to the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, it says there there are two times in the life of the Buddha when kind of he's especially bright and clear. That is at the time of awakening and just when he's about to pass away, the Parinibbana time. Those are the two times. So you can imagine meeting the Buddha, the faculties being very, very sharp. Yeah. And when you see that, you can feel this being. There's something different about this being. People aren't normally like this. This is kind of weird. What is going on here? Something very powerful about this person. Are they human? Maybe not even human. Who knows? I, you know, this is the thing. There is a sutta which is precisely like that. There's this Brahmin called Dona, and he goes to the Buddha and says, Are you human or are you not human? What, what are you? Uh, yeah, you seem different from most other people that I kind of know. And it's a good question. Yeah, is the Buddha still human? In a way, he is. In a way, he's kind of gone beyond being human. But he's not a god either. He's beyond everything, the whole kind of thing. So the Buddha is very powerful and it's upaka. He realizes he's in presence of something very special, right? This is his opportunity. Yeah? When you are in the presence of something special, this is the time to give rise to faith. This is the time to become a disciple. So does Upaka become a disciple? Well, this is what we will find out, right? Because he's in the presence of this supreme teacher. Your skin is pure and bright. So if you want to have nice skin, become an Arahant. Yeah, that's the way to get nice. <laughs> good complexion. That's the best way to get a good complexion. And of course, if you are enlightened, yeah, then the question is always, who is your teacher? Because that is what is expected in the spiritual world. Everyone has a teacher. Yeah, Whose teaching do you follow? What, who, what kind of disciple are you? Let's hear about the, your lineage and where you come from. right? And if you haven't got a lineage, if you haven't got a teacher, it's a bit suspect. Is that right? If you go down to Melbourne, yeah, go down to the city, and someone walks around saying, yeah, I'm enlightened. Yeah, who, who is your teacher? No, I'm just enlightened by myself. Well, what are you going to say? Are you going to say, oh, yeah, wow, that's really inspiring? Or are you going to dismiss them straight away? Chances are you will dismiss them, right? You think they're nuts and they're kind of, they should be locked up somewhere. That's what usually what we think people who say those things. And there's a good reason for that because that's what most people say. Who, you know, most people who say that they are kind of lost the plot, basically. But maybe not always. And this is kind of what we're seeing here. The Buddha replied to Upaka in verse, I am the victor, the knower of all, 
abandoning all. I'm not soiled by anything here. Through my own insight, I'm freed by the ending of craving here. So who should I refer to as a teacher? I have no teacher. No one like me exists. In the world with its gods, I have no equal. For I am the perfected one, the supreme teacher. I alone am fully awakened. I am cool and extinguished. I am going to the city of Kasi to set rolling the wheel of the teaching. In this world immersed in darkness, I will beat the drum of the deathless. So, uh, so <laughs> that's what it says to Upaka. I, I, I have to admit, I can't blame Upaka for being a bit skeptical. <laughs> Imagine you met someone who said that to you. What would you say? I mean, the chances are you would be skeptical. Of course, the, the Buddha is also very powerful, right? So he is not really taking on board here what is going on. So he, you need to kind of look at the person as well yeah, and see what they are like. But it's very difficult to take these things kind of seriously. You have to be incredibly sharp to be able to recognize a Buddha. I know people often say, yeah, you know, this, the, uh, now the kind of the Dhamma has disappeared in the world yeah, and we need to wait for the next Buddha, Buddha Maitreya. That's when I will practice. Yeah? Then I will become a monk and a nun because I want the Buddha to be there. That's really powerful. Yeah? But chances are you will be just like Upaka. You meet the Buddha and you just walk off and you kind of misunderstand, right? That's the, that's the reality of it. It's actually very difficult to recognize a Buddha for who they are. It takes very special, deep spiritual powers of your own to see someone else's spiritual powers. So I think this is a very dangerous idea, this idea that I will wait for the next Buddha. Don't wait for the next Buddha. It is also a bit uh, disrespectful to the present Buddha because we have his teachings now. They are still available to us. We know what they are. Yeah, there's no doubt about that we know what those teachings are. As long as the teachings are there, the Dhamma is available. And uh, so it's this idea that the Dhamma is lost is a, is a mistaken idea. It's still available to us. And uh, you know that sometimes. Sometimes you meet people in this world who are very special. You get this feeling, yeah, there's something going on here. Enlightenment is still possible. That's the feeling you get sometimes when you meet some of these people. So what is actually the Buddha saying here? Well, he's saying that he doesn't have any teacher, right? I've done this through my own insight. So who should I refer to as a teacher? No one like me exists. <laughs> I have no equal. I'm the supreme teacher. I am cool and extinguished. Cool, city butto. It literally means having, I think that's what it is there, I'm not sure. I think that's what it is. Nibuto and city butto. You are cool. Yeah, there's no, you are in, within. You are kind of even, always cool. There's no fluctuations in your emotions apart from feeling bliss when you go into samadhi. You're cool down. You no don't, longer don't get touched. There's no fire inside of you. Most people have these fires of desire and craving that make them do things in the world. The Buddha doesn't have any of that. He is cool. So monks are cool. <laughs> Some monks are cool anyway. Well, the monks, they need cool sunglasses to be cool, but uh, the, the really cool monks, no need for sunglasses. You're cool already in the deepest sense. 
So I'm going to the city of Kasi. Kasi is another word for uh, Benares. And uh, to set rolling the wheel of the Dhamma. That's what I said before, right? The Buddha knows that he's setting rolling the wheel of the Dhamma. And uh, to help the world immersed in darkness. It's kind of interesting, this idea of darkness, yeah? It's that your mind is, unless you have insight into the nature of reality, you are in darkness. You don't know what is going on. You don't see things clearly. Even if the sun is high on the sky and it's a beautiful day, still there is that darkness within, that inability to see things properly. That's why the Buddha is the eye of the world who sees. He sees through that darkness and then teaches the others, everyone else, to enable us to penetrate through that darkness, see the light, quite literally, right? And then again, the similar kind of insight. To beat the drum of the deathless. Yeah, the idea of spreading the word into the world. Uh, the drum is like something which sends the sound far away uh, in the same way. By teaching these teachings, uh, you're sending forth this message. Uh, and as soon as you send it forth, uh, and as soon as people understand the profundity of this message, uh, it spreads by itself. Uh, it spreads by the power of its own inherent beauty of that message. Uh, and it goes on into the world from generation to generation, from society to society, from person to person. It spreads out into the world. Uh, it's kind of a self-propelled mechanism. Yeah? The wheel of the Dhamma rolling on, uh, uh, starting out in the city of Kasi. We have a monk at Bodhinyana Monastery who is from India. And so I asked him, you know, what, you know, there is a city called Benares, Varanasi. He, and I asked him, well, do you know anything? What about Kasi? Does that make any sense to you? Because you're from India. You know what's going on in India. He's from the Punjab. He used to be a Sikh in Punjab. And now he doesn't have a turban anymore. Now he's got a shaven head instead. So he's become a monk, which is kind of really nice. And so he said, no. He said his grandfather used to speak of the city of Kasi. Yeah, he told me here. So this idea of Kasi and Benares being the same thing is even exists in the present day. Yeah? So this is the real uh, f- fair income. This is the real real deal. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, you know, yeah, Kasi. Yeah, same thing. Oh, that's true. Uh, you're from there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think the difference is that Varanasi is usually the city, whereas Kasi is like the city plus maybe a little bit of extra land. It's like the country uh, yeah. outskirts. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit more than just a city. And yeah, have a yeah. You are from Benares, of course. Well, that's even better. We have a local. Yeah, we have the. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, so next time we are in Benares, we will uh, we will contact you. Okay, very good. <laughs> Kasi and Benares. Okay, so this is what the Buddha says, yeah, and uh, what happens then? Well, what happens then is that according to your own claim, you must be a universal conqueror, says Upaka. You can feel a bit of skepticism there, right? And then the Buddha says, indeed, those like me are conquerors, those who have ended the corruptions. I have conquered all bad traits, therefore Upaka I'm a conqueror. And then Upaka says, saying, May it be so. Upaka shook his head, chose the wrong path, and left. 
<laughs> so this is what happens, right? And this is kind of this is so fascinating. And it's uh, the um, the word for path here is uh, kumaga, I think kumaga. And kumaga is a kind of word in the suttas that uh, means the wrong path, also in the sense of the eightfold path. Yeah. So it's kind of the uh, the idea here is that he, not only did he kind of go off in the wrong direction, but he completely lost the plot and didn't know that he was he was in the presence of the Buddha. It's hard to recognize. Yeah, we think that we will see spiritual enlightenment when it's before our eyes, but usually we don't. We have it's very very hard to see, and the reason is because we are so sunk in worldly pleasures. There is a place in the suttas where the, there is a Brahmin or, or some person who, uh, who invites the Buddha for a meal. So the Buddha comes to for a meal in the house and then the Buddha asks the Brahmin, who do you support? Yeah, what are the ascetics that you support? And the Brahmin says, yeah, I support the Arahants and those who are on the path to Arahantship. Yeah, that's, those are the people I support, says the Brahmin. And then the Buddha says to him, he says that, uh, actually, you know, it is very hard for a householder like you <laughs> to know who are the Arahants and the people on the path to Arahantship in the world. It's very difficult to know. And the reason why it is so hard to know is because when you are sunk in the sensual pleasures, your mind is actually quite distorted. And it's very hard to pick out the profound truth on a real spiritual path. You have some idea who is kind, you have some idea who is peaceful, but understanding the full depth of the Dhamma, someone who has given up all defilements, actually it is beyond most people. And this is what's happening to Upaka, yeah? He just goes off in the wrong direction. He is faced, face to face, with the most profound truth in the world. He's meeting the Buddha, for goodness sake, the greatest spiritual human person in human history. Here he is. The Buddha is right there with him. He doesn't get it. He walks off. Yeah, it's kind of it's very. There's a big lesson in that. It's a big lesson for all of us on the urgency of the practice of the spiritual path because it's very hard to get onto this path. It's so hard to miss it. So hard to get it all wrong because of our own misunderstandings, because of the way we are sunk in defilements and all of these kind of things. So now is the opportunity. Don't wait for Maitreya Buddha. Who is Maitreya anyway? Maitreya is like this pie in the sky. I mean, we know that there will be future Buddhas because as I said before, Buddhas are just natural phenomena. Every now and again, there is a Buddha in the world. But the, even the name Maitreya is just a myth. Yeah, We know there is going to be a Buddha. We don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know who it's going to be. We have no idea. So don't wait for the pie in the sky. Don't wait for the mirage, for that uncertainty. Now is the opportunity. And this is kind of the, one of the morales of this story. Yeah. And uh, so every little thing like this has a, has a great significance to it. And this is what comes out of this. It is 10 o'clock. So we're going to stop there. So uh, again, please enjoy, keep on enjoying yourself. Have a nice lunch and I will see you back again at 2 o'clock.